of the ways it was always framed to me with my teachers when I was over in Israel is oftentimes when we don't understand something, we get frustrated, we get angry, we our face becomes downcast. When it, often in that ancient world and even today in a Jewish world, when they don't understand something, they dance because they know that there's more to learn. And they know that someday when the time is right and they have the tools and the pieces are in place. But again, I think they that's that assumption. We like to kind of always make ourselves feel like we know everything and we know we don't like we know we don't, but we kind of build a world where we don't acknowledge where they would go. Oh, of course, of course, there's more to be learned. Of course there's, and I can't wait when I'm ready, when I know enough, this is going to make sense to me. I've tried to put that in practice, but I'm as Western as everybody else. And I struggle with it. But sometimes I've said, I don't know about this yet. And I don't think I have the tools yet to understand it, but I can't wait for the day where All of a sudden, I'm going to have some new, this past is going to come to life in a new way. Well, hey, Into the Harvest friends, John Snyder here. Just want to welcome you into today to our podcast. It's a great opportunity for us to learn from another, um, yeah, just disciple maker who's been making disciples for a number of years and has a desire to help you ask better questions of the Bible. So today I welcome in Marty Solomon. He's an author, a podcaster, and really just a great lover of Jesus and a, a pretty interesting character. So uh, Marty, you describe yourself um, uh, from your website as an author, a content creator, a resource creator on a mission to expand bad readings, to examine bad readings of the Bible, uh, to reconstruct better readings of the Bible that are informed by historical Jewish context. Um, And you've really dedicated your life to study and learn. You've done that with mentors, but really they've helped you kind of get on this process to learn on your own. Um, And you really want to pass that on to others. Um, So I just wonder for listeners who aren't familiar with your work, could you tell us a little bit about your uh, backstory and your journey? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was raised in evangelicalism. It was always the waters that I was swimming in, um, which is beautiful. And I talk about that in that first chapter of just I'm really indebted to um, uh, a certain corner of evangelical fundamentalism that gave me these passions and these values that were so beneficial for me. They served as, as, as some guardrails that proved that, you know, they stood the test of time. Um, but I, you know, I went to Bible college. I had a whole bunch of questions. I spent four years in Bible focused undergrad ministry training. And at the end of all that, I felt like I had a, a lot of wonderful answers, a lot of great data, a lot of wonderful preparation. I also had like a whole list of lingering questions that were also kind of a big deal. Um, and, and God was at work and the mentors around me and guided and discipled me and shaped me. But I also got to spend some time over in Israel and Turkey with Ray Vanderlaan. And he helped give me a bibliography and point me in some directions and have some personal conversations that were really, really helpful and very, it, it was, it, it shaped my own consciousness as a church leader. But I wanted to share the things that I had learned. Um, and I had a passion for young people, not because of an age demographic, but because of a season of life. Like they were in a place where they could say yes to Jesus in a unique way. They didn't have three kids. They didn't have a mortgage and a career. They were also adults. They could make their own decisions and they weren't, you know, exactly youth uh, at their, you know, living in their parents' home. I just had this, this passion to want to work with them uh, and to experiment with discipleship with them. And I knew that if we were going to do that, we were going to have to be honest. We were going to have to deal with, we're going to have to grapple with what we had done and what we were doing with the Bible to at least have it on the table and to talk objectively about those things. And so, yeah, I I was in the work of campus ministry. I started leading impact campus ministries, which had been around long before me, but they asked me to serve as president back in 2016. That's actually what drove us to create the podcast as I had to start traveling. But that was really my heart behind really behind all my ministry. How can we take young people, not discourage their questions, but encourage their questions, give them the tools to, to lean further into Jesus, lean further, dive deeper into the Bible. Cause I didn't think they wanted less of the Bible. I think they wanted more. And how could we encourage that and equip them to do those things? So that was really my passion behind ministry. Yeah, that's, that's really good. I think 
maybe it was years ago, Dobson talked about that critical decade where he talks about 18 to 28, you know, young, where young people are making decisions in life at that point that kind of sets the trajectory of the, of their life. Uh, so it does seem like that's such a really important time. We've done a lot of ministry here at, uh, at Fort Liberty in Fayetteville, North Carolina to soldiers, same thing, kind of that young demographic, helping them make decisions early on that'll really help them kind of walk with Jesus for a lifetime. I wonder, I wonder if you could um, just kind of pull on that idea of of helping people in that time really wrestle with the scriptures and really kind of press into. We're kind of really go into that a couple quotes from your book, but you you've, you use this phrase: impact the you, impact the world. Um, you know, the eighteen to twenty eight. But knowing we've got to do business with a generation that has questions and maybe questions that we didn't even ask. Um, so I wonder if you could kind of just unpack that idea a little bit. Yeah, I feel like for me, the conversation got pushed into two kind of polar competing voices. One voice that said, the Bible is everything, trust the Bible, just trust it blindly, just trust it, it's everything. And then another voice that said, the Bible is like, come on, really? Like, it's kind of this thing that you might consider, you might. And I felt like that those two, I equally felt equally bad about both those options. Like I, I felt like neither one of those, uh, I think what I wanted to encourage young people to do and what, what, what we encourage young people to do today is to assume not the, the worst about the Bible, assume the best about the Bible. Like assume that God, assume that Jesus and the Bible are bigger and better than our wildest or our dumbest theologies. Like consider that Jesus and the Bible will catch you like when the when the floor when the theological floor falls out from underneath you Jesus and the Bible are bigger than that because if they're not then it was never Jesus and the Bible anyway it was our it was our tradition or our expression or our 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 dogma or our doctrine but it really wasn't the person of Christ and it wasn't the Bible itself that was guiding those conversations if those things are true as we always claim them to be and that means they're underneath everything else and and those things because they're not the result of what we put on paper. They're not the result of what we create. That means I can trust in those things a little bit. I can trust in the person of Jesus more than I can trust in my understanding that I have today. That's why I can push into those questions because there's this stuff that I don't understand. There's stuff that I don't know. So I would assume that the Bible's better than how I've understood it before. I I would assume that Jesus is better than the way we've always described and explained him to be. So those are those are some of the things I I love to do with young adults. Yeah, so good. I love that, Marty. And you know, just that dismissive phrase of "don't ask" or "Hey, the Bible's true. You can count on it." Um, I, I believe one of the quotes you say that you know our Bible can stand up to that. The Lord can stand up to that. Those questions. Um, but I wonder before we kind of jump into some of the just kind of nuts and bolts of your book. Would you be willing to just kind of share a little bit of stories about you that might kind of give us a glimpse in your personality so we get to know you a little bit and kind of not not just the fact that you're an author or, you know, someone who, who has a podcast, but maybe get to know you a little bit, Marty? Sure. Um, what are the things that I love to do? I, I, I'm a parent of two, so I've got a I've got a 15 and a 13 year old, 15 year old daughter, 13 year old son, and they have changed the way that I use my free time and my schedule, and that's okay because I only got a few years with them at home probably left, and so I go to a lot of basketball games and a lot of football games. My daughter is in Little Mermaid musical right now for her first. She's a freshman in high school, and this is her first musical opportunity. So it's a lot of fun. I'm on the road a lot. So when I'm home, I really try to be home. Uh, Probably the one hobby I get to partake in these days is hunting. I usually try to get out and do that once a year. Finally got to fill a freezer uh, full of um, ethically harvested meat and, uh, and, and got to enjoy that. Um, I, when I was younger, I was, I was your I was your athlete. I was your student athlete. Uh, That was kind of my MO. Kind of got all the good grades, never missed school, never missed Sunday school, never missed church, never missed youth group. Wanted to really excel in sports and athletics. 
that's really you know i was i was following the track as best as and my mom you you you, you referenced dobson earlier my joke is always that dobson was the fourth member of the trinity in our household like my mom she followed that track as hard as she could and i and that's really where i was headed um wanted to go play football had a couple scholarship opportunities to go try to pursue some of that wanted to go into law maybe politics on the back end of that so that was really who I was and then somewhere around my junior senior year I started to develop kind of my own faith that wasn't handed to me by my parents that wasn't shaped by my youth minister but me realizing oh do I do I believe these things and that's really where my life took a an interesting turn and went to bible college instead and my mom didn't understand it, even though she loved the idea. She didn't understand what I was doing. I didn't understand what I was doing. Met my wife. I'm so thrilled that my life took that turn. But that's always that's always been a little bit of my story. Yeah, praise God and His sovereignty and His hands all over that. You know, kind of surprises. Kind of these these cool surprises from God as you follow Him. Well, I'd, I'd really love to talk about the beginning of your book. Um, in fact, early on, you, you contrast those two ideas. You kind of loosely reference them. Um, and this is one of the phrases from, from the book. It says, quick, ex- excuse me, quick explanations, confident declarations, slick and polished the- theology. So you contrast that with the idea of embracing the journey. Uh, you say doubts are invitations, opportunities to continue the journey of discovery. And, we, and when we press into the journey, we end up meeting uh, the person who holds all things together. Uh, so I just wonder, could you talk a little bit about that premise and how can we embrace the journey um, and keep from cementing our fence posts as we follow Jesus? Well, I love that phrase, cementing our fence posts. Um because the fence is helpful, the fence is useful, and yet we never, it was never really about us putting up fences anyway, and yet those things serve their purpose. Um, and yet there is, there is a person, the person of Jesus behind, we get really enamored with the fence posts, like we really do. We end up, we really want to put those things in the right place, we really want to make sure it's, a, it's an effective fence, we really want to... And so we really want to get that right. And we get pretty enamored with, pretty focused on, obsessed at times even with those fence posts and the job of putting them up. Realizing the whole time that there's this larger thing, this larger reality. I don't know where the metaphor starts to break down, but the pasture that we're meant to dwell in is where we're supposed to be experiencing the person of Jesus. And and the stuff that I can't really put in a systematic theology book, the I mean, call it mystical if we need to, whatever, but it's, it's what the spirit of God is doing in us. Um, it's, it's the way we get to meet Jesus, uh, in the mornings, in the, in the, in the places where we create space and Jesus talks to us and he shapes us. I just had a quote on my whiteboard this morning from Strahan Coleman that says, um, uh, in God's economy, transformation happens through revelation, not through information acquisition, not through data acquisition. And, and, and it's just so easy to get, we know that. And yet it becomes so easy to forget why we're even here in the first place. And so, so I think we, we really become addicted to those quick explanations, those confident declarations. We really like slick and polished theology. It gives us a sense of certainty, a sense of, um, but, but the problem with that certainty is we start to put our confidence in that rather than the God who kind of doesn't like to be put in boxes. Not that the boxes are bad. They're helpful. The fence is helpful. But there's also a God kind of just kind of got that smirk on his face. Like, I love your fence. And now let me do something else. And and just it's a it's an it's where do we have our attention focused? Yeah, that's so good. Um, you know, I've I've heard people talk about this idea of how how we pasture animals. It's a little different in America where we have these massive fences and you know, we kind of box everyone in and you maybe we even paint the sheep with a little stripe on the back, you know, but in other places of the world, they send a well. There's a well right in the middle of all of the land and the animals congregate around that well. And really, if we can begin to kind of think about less about fences and more about kind of centering these wells and the well being Jesus, obviously for us and how the scriptures and life and circumstances and the body of Christ pushes us back to that well over and over and over again. And then hopefully what's in the well comes up in the bucket, you know, that 
we've really focused on the person of Jesus. And um, so I, I love how you kind of push on us to help us embrace the journey in this book, um, asking better questions of the Bible. And that's I think it's such such a such a, a helpful tool to, to really kind of think about it as a journey, truth unfolding over time. Yep. Yeah. What I love about that, that picture you just shared about shepherding is so true in the biblical world. And I've had the opportunity at times, I can't manufacture this moment, but there's been a few times with my students, I'll lead study tours over to Israel and Turkey, and you will have a few flocks that converge on a well at the same time. And they don't have stripes on the back. And, and yet, the thing that separates them is the shepherd knows them and they know, as Jesus says in John, my sheep know my voice. And so all that shepherd has to do is give a short one word command and those sheep know immediately to follow him. And so what I love about that is it's not the fence that defines the flock. It's that personal relationship that we were just talking about. Do you know his voice? Do you know Jesus or do you know about Jesus? And so that's part of part of, I think, what we were getting at. Yeah, it's so good. You know, I've, I've heard you talk um, with other folks and on your on your podcast about this idea of deconstruction, and you describe that as spiritual puberty. Um, so deconstruction kind of gets thrown around a lot, um, and generally speaking, Christians wig out about it. You know, like, oh no, don't don't deconstruct your faith. Um, but for you, deconstruction meant actually I'm going to Jesus and the Bible. Um, and one of the phrases that you use is, we seek to engage the Bible more faithfully because of its ability to connect us with the one who can transform all things. And um, man, you, you go on to paint this really beautiful picture. Nobody will fight for you more zealously, with more commitment and perseverance, with more forgiveness and compassion and love than the one we are examining in the scriptures, and that being Jesus. So I wonder if, if you could talk about the idea of, of deconstruction um, this idea of spiritual puberty and how Jesus and the Bible end up being these anchor points uh, to help us as we kind of embrace the journey. Yeah, absolutely. Like, first of all, the conversation starts with that assumption that I think I've rarely found anywhere anybody that doesn't just, yeah, we're growing. Like, if we have the exact same faith 10 years from now that we have today, that will feel funny. Like we're, we're growing, we're learning, we're being shaped. Um, wh whether, whether the word, you know, we're evolving. I don't know. Sometimes that word gives people, makes them break out in spiritual hives, but, um, like we are changing, we are being developed. That is a natural part of any healthy growing person physically, emotionally, relationally, and spiritually, like we're, we're growing. I, I hope that the faith I have 20 years from now is more matured, more developed, more evolved than the one that I have today. If not, something's horribly wrong. And so that means that if we're growing, we're going to go through those awkward growth stages that we were so used to in all of our, in our relationships and our peer peer circles. Uh, and, I, and I love the idea of spiritual puberty, puberty because that, that stage of life physically was awkward and it was disorienting. And it was, and your voice is cracking and you feel like an idiot. And, and yet you have to go through it because everything that you're wanting to become is on the other side of that transition. Um, and there are things to guide that transition well, and not everybody has them, but there are things in our life that help guide a good, healthy family or a wonderful relationship with a mom or a dad or good mentors. And not everybody has these things, but there are ways to help us go through that physical transition well. There are ways that help us go. And, and for me, two of those pieces are the Jesus and the, and so we kind of, we get, we get anxious because we feel like deconstruction is going to pull us away from the faith. That's a, there's a fear behind that. And yet you, we can't get away from the elements that are in what we call deconstruction. Again, use the word or don't use the word. Doesn't bother me much at all. But the reality of the elements that are in the process of pulling your faith apart, looking at the pieces that you assume, realizing you want to put some of them to the side, you want to throw some away, you want to, you want to embrace some of them even more. That's natural. That's not just natural. That's healthy. If those things are guided and directed by the person of Jesus, the wisdom, uh, the, the beautiful, perfect wisdom of the scriptures then we don't have to be scared of, of deconstruction. But when we fight it, 
we actually seem to push people away from not only G deconstruction, but Jesus and the Bible at the same time. And that's what I always wanted to reframe, especially for young students. I wasn't going to try to keep them from the process. I wanted to encourage them to push into it. But head there with the two things that you know to be so true. Take them with you. Uh, Marty, that, that is so good. It, it really makes me think about the, the verse in John chapter 5. Jesus is talking to the religious leaders in John 5, 39 and 40. And he says, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So how do we live in this, you know, this tension knowing that the scriptures are going to teach us things, but really the scriptures are supposed to usher us into the presence of Jesus? Um, and you use this phrase in, in your book where you say, I often tell my students, remember, the whole thing is about Jesus, just Jesus, not Jesus and fill in the blank or Jesus for a season or Jesus for a time. But so it seems like there is this real danger to kind of be theological and kind of have this real kind of rounded orthodoxy, yet not know Jesus. In fact, that was very true of the religious leaders of his time. So I wonder if you'd talk about how do we get onto this journey and maybe encourage parents and church leaders, pastors, youth pastors, disciple makers, how to help their disciples really press into this idea of, yeah, it's okay. We can wrestle with these questions. So I'll give you the floor. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a good question. And and it's not that we need to reject all the things that often seem to get in the way because it's it's kind of like defense. Those things are really helpful. You know, I'm I'm a part of a faith tradition. I'm a part of a certain denomination. I'm a part of a certain tradition. An expression of the faith that's been around for however many centuries. And that's a beautiful thing, but it's not the point. And so usually we kind of give students the impression, yeah, it's about Jesus, but not that kind of Jesus. It's about Jesus, but not their Jesus. It's about Jesus. Well, and we have to remember, it really is about Jesus. When I keep that centered, now I can actually embrace and focus on my tradition, not as the only thing that gets me to Jesus, but as a really helpful support structure, like scaffolding that I can stand on because Jesus is the point. And here's why I find my tradition so beneficial and helpful. But there are other Christian expressions and traditions that also people have found helpful. And it that is really important for young people because I like to see the affirmation of other people's experiences. And so to be able to say, this is what I find beautiful about who we are and the way that we do this, but it's not the thing that gives you life. Jesus is the thing that gives you life. And it also happens the other way. So if those same students and young adults are listening to a more secular worldly voice, it's the same thing. Well, Jesus is fine as long as it's Jesus and as long as it's this kind of a Jesus, when we, when we take our cues from any system, any ideology, conservative, liberal, whatever it might be, this political end of the spectrum, that political end of the spectrum, when we take our cues from that rather than the person of Jesus, we've essentially turned around and really started focusing on the scaffolding that got us there rather than the thing itself that we're actually trying to be focused on. And and so those are, it's just about Jesus. And when, and when the thing you're standing on gets you there, good. But that thing, if it comes or goes, isn't the most important thing if you're still looking at Jesus, if you're still talking to Jesus, if you still know Jesus, the other stuff, it was all just scaffolding anyway. So we'll be okay. Yeah, it's so good. We often use this phrase, don't trade the vehicle for the destination. You know, so making sure, you know, that the, we're not so excited about what helps us get to the place that we realize like, oh man. I got this great Tesla, but really I'm parking it more than I'm driving it, you know? So how do, how do we make sure we keep the destination in focus and not the vehicle that gets us there, you know? So that's really good. Well, one of our goals on this podcast is to help people live in ancient faith in modern times, um, that, that God himself is unchanging. The scriptures usher in, usher us into this idea that, that God is eternal. He's the beginning of time all the way through to the end of time. Um, so, you know, how do we have a more faithful engagement with the Bible? We're getting ready to launch a series where we're really going to focus and help people dive into the scriptures and ask good questions. Um, and that's really why we wanted to have you on, to have folks kind of have this resource in their hand about asking better questions of the Bible. So you, you actually state this in your book on uh, page nine. You say translations and cultural context. Then you ask, which translations? Written to me or to historical audiences? When we don't consider these, don't we risk presuming that we are the ultimate authority? 
And isn't it readily apparent that our perspectives are wildly different from the ones the Bible assumes? And so you kind of alluded to this earlier during your intro, but I wonder if you could just unpack those thoughts for us. I think that is so good as we think about a faithful engagement with the scriptures. Yeah, absolutely. It's it it's very common for us to feel like the Bible is kind of this abstract book that exists in a vacuum, that it's always kind of written to me. And that's not to take away for a moment how the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and speaks to us through the Word of God. Don't want to do away with that at all. But as a, as an, uh, as a work of objective exegesis, big words for just what it means to interpret the Bible as a work of hermeneutics, the work of interpreting the scripture. Um, there's a, there's an objectivity to making sure we're reading the scripture. When we, when we say it's inspired, what we mean is that this ancient book written down centuries, thousands of years ago, that there's something God breathed, that the source and the origin of this thing that's been passed down through generations is coming from God and is going to guide, authoritatively guide our lives and wisdom and decisions and all those kinds of things, then, then, then outside of the work that the Holy Spirit's going to do day to day in our life, when it just comes to reading that book well, objectively, then there's, there's questions that we ought to to be asking because there was a conversation that that is inspired and that conversation happened a long time ago. There was a conversation between say the apostle Paul and the people in the region of Galatia. And that letter of Galatians is a conversation happening almost 2000 years ago to a people group with an author and an audience in a particular part of history in a particular part of the Greco-Asian world, biblical world, and all of these things matter. And so we talk in the book about authorial intent a lot. And what was the intent of the author? And that hits on multiple levels. So when Paul is writing to the people of Galatia, and he says a phrase like works of the law, he is thinking some, he has an understanding, a particular understanding of what works of the law means. And, and his understanding wasn't shaped by the work of the reformers 1600 years later. His understanding of works of the law are built on his own immediate context. The conversations that are taking place in second temple Judaism and, and the Judaism that forms just right thereafter. Those are the things that are, and his audience is understanding that conversation with those same assumptions. So if we go to exegete that conversation out of Galatians, we have to be aware of that author that authorial intention and what did Paul mean when he wrote it? And what did the Galatians hear when they heard it? Because when I understand that conversation between those two people in history, I am now understanding the inspired conversation. And now the work becomes... How do I take that conversation and apply that to my context today? And that application happens a little later than it might typically happen, than we might typically be used to. Yeah, it's, it, you know, it's, it's really kind of how do I read myself into the Bible, trying to be like someone in the crowd at Galatia and trying to be kind of live in that place. You know, one of the tools we try and help people think through when they're reading the scriptures or reading the gospels, or even if they're, you know, in the old Testament as they're reading through some of the prophets or maybe even an exodus in that story, pretend it's a movie plot and you're one of the actors in that plot and you need to do a great job, you know, understanding the mindset of each of the people, whether that's you're acting as Moses or you're acting as the people of Israel as they're exiting and the, and Pharaoh's running after them, or you're Paul writing that letter to the Galatians. How can you think, Oh, this is who I am. This is where I'm living right now. This is my circumstances. This is their circumstances. And and sometimes we even kind of build the text out with kind of different colors. So, hey, you're going to read the red letters and you're going to be Jesus, which you're not, obviously, you know, to, just to help us understand and be on this journey. And then, you know, hey, you're this disciple or that disciple, just to kind of help people think through, hey, there's a real plot here that's happening. And you actually have to enter into that to really fully understand what did it mean in order to understand what does it mean and what do I do with it? Um, so that's kind of a fun tool that we use. I don't know if you've, I don't know how you guys would set up your groups to be able to do that in terms of thinking through that authorial intent. It seems like that happens a lot in man demands and kind of as you storytell 
through the Bible like you do on the Bama podcast. Yeah, it's one of our favorite tools that we have used during, uh, like internally on staff, we have these monthly prayer calls. And one of my favorite formats we've used before, and it started with my mentor before I even had the job, but um, he would take a passage of scripture and he would invite us to be inside of it as we just read it and tried to connect with it on that level, pretty much what you're describing. And it was always such a helpful exercise and and it's really the same principles we're talking about when it even comes to things like exegesis and, and interpreting scripture. Yeah, it's so good. I, I don't know if you've got any tools for that. We, we use this phrase, what does it say? Um, why does it say it? So what, so what, and now what? You know, so as I think about those things, how do I, how do I press into, is, is God just giving me a deeper understanding? Is he helping me and wanting me to, to have a different action? Um it's basically observation, interpretation, application, all kinds of different of those same common tools with maybe a little spin on them. But how do we have this faithful engagement with the scriptures? And, and really, it's this invitation to never stop learning. Um, I believe it was on one of your Bama podcasts. I, I might butcher it, so you'll have to jump in that, you know, when, when we think about it in a kind of a Western Christian culture and our, in our context, we think, oh, there's something I don't understand about God and I'm frustrated and it makes me just, ah, what do I do? And kind of grab tighter. But in the Eastern mindset, that would be, man, truth is going to unfold over time. And we actually get to be on this journey knowing that, oh man, I can't wait till God reveals what this passage means or what he was communicating in this thought. So could you unpack that for me and maybe fix up my jacked up quote there um, as we, as we kind of talk about that idea? Yeah, you pretty much nailed it. Um, it's one of one of the ways it was always framed to me with my teachers when I was over in Israel is oftentimes when we don't understand something, we get frustrated, we get angry, we our face becomes downcast. When a, often in that ancient world and even today in a Jewish world, when they don't understand something, they dance because they know that there's more to learn. And they know that someday when the time is right and they have the tools and the pieces are in place. But again, I think they that's that assumption. We like to kind of always make ourselves feel like we know everything and we know we don't like we know we don't, but we kind of build a world where we don't acknowledge where they would go. Oh, of course, of course, there's more to be learned. Of course there's, and I can't wait when I'm ready, when I know enough, this is going to make sense to me. I've tried to put that in practice, but I'm as Western as everybody else. And I struggle with it. But sometimes I've said, I don't know about this yet. And I don't think I have the tools yet to understand it, but I can't wait for the day where all of a sudden, I'm going to have some new, this past is going to come to life in a new way. And uh, that's always an encouragement. Yeah, it's so good. And if we recognize this, right? So I've read this passage, you know, so many times, or I try and make a goal of reading the Bible, you know, once every year, you know, sometimes I make it, sometimes I don't, you know, but, um, and then constantly you're kind of reading through the gospels. But the cool thing is every time you go through there, you recognize, wow, I've never seen this before. This is a perspective of the Lord that I've never seen. And it really is this kind of dancing moment when he reveals, but can we have that dancing moment when we're asking the question, you know, and, and how do we really embrace the journey? Um, so it, that's really fun, you know, and it's fun to watch the light bulbs go on with young people as they're, wow, God showed me this in the Bible. Um, so that's really cool that, that you're helping folks do that. I think your book does a great job of that. Um, you use a phrase that you borrowed from, um, Oh man, is it Dr. Burge? How do how do you say his name? Do you know? <laughs> Dr. Burge, yeah, no, Dr. Dr. Burge, Gary, yeah. Gary Burge, yep. Yeah, he he says uh, he calls us. We have to be aware that we're literary literary tourists, um, and then you exhort us be aware yeah. of your tourism. So um, I, I think that's a, another great yeah. tool uh, when we talk about hermeneutics. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I thought it was a really helpful. Um, word picture because I think we feel like we kind of own the Bible like the Bible is ours and it is for us the Bible's for us in every way imaginable but yeah it, it's we've received it through you know the this this library this biblical library we've, re, we've received through generations and generations and a historical little journey it's been on and so we have to always remember as we would if we visited any country or land or new city for the first time I don't know these streets. I don't know where I'm at. I don't understand the culture. 
And you could overdo that, but I love that word picture of when you go to the Bible, remember that it's not your normal world. It's a different world you're stepping into, which means what are you going to need? You're going to need, you're going to need some locals. You're going to need, some, you're going to need a guide to help you. And there are be- wonderfully in our world. There are so many tools and in an information age that we can find a lot of different things that can help guide us into that world and help us ask those questions. So um, I'm glad I live in 2023 with this awareness and not the middle of, say, the 1800s with this awareness. And I'm glad that God has always worked in every age exactly with what the people of God needed. It just feels like in this age, with what we have at our disposal today, God's still at work and and wants us to steward that well. Absolutely. Yeah. Praise God for that. You're, you're exactly right. There's really this idea of embracing God's sovereignty in our time frame and trusting our circumstances and trusting the tools and trusting the people God brings into our lives. Um, yeah, it, it just, it's just a, another reference to the goodness of God and his, his pursuit of us as his people. Um, and we're kind of, sometimes he's out in front of us, you know, we're, we're holding on and sometimes he's back behind us trying to pull us back and help us remember. And I you just think like, just keep our hands clasped together and it, we're probably going to be okay in this terms of being a faithful, having faithful engagement uh, with the scriptures well, there's no way as we as I look through your book, I was thinking, well, he, this is how we would handle the, the first five books. And then there's the books of poetry and then you have prophecy and wisdom. And I, I just really want to encourage our listeners that as you study the Bible and you're in these different pictures and different places and that you have to realize that they're different styles because they usher us into the presence of God in a different way. I felt like you've done a really great job with that, Marty, in your book of how do we understand um, the prophets, how did that work together? Um, what are they saying? How are they saying it? How about the difference between, say, kings and chronicles and, and things like that? You've done a great job just helping people see that. So I just wanted to give, you know, t- to our listeners, give them a shout out to just say, you got to check out the book. There's no way we actually could kind of pull all of those things in together in, in kind of a 50-minute podcast here. But great job on that. I don't know if you have any things that you would talk about just in terms of maybe an overview of, of how you would kind of think about those books. I know you've kind of got a preamble and an introduction and kind of this trajectory towards Jesus, but I don't know if there's, if you'd, if you'd want to say anything about that for our listeners. Yeah, well, you've done a really good job setting it up and choosing to, you know, have a lot of our conversation in those first couple chapters, because that really is the right place to do it. The book itself is basically, I mean, once you get to that quote by Dr. Burge, that's what the book is designed to be is one of many, There's going to be many, but it can be one helpful guide that can help us um, walk through what I call the biblical library. Um, The Bible is this seamless story. I usually always teach it as a narrative with an arc, and we, we do talk about that in the book. And yet that narrative has come to us through what I like to call the biblical library. There's the books of Moses, and then there's history, and there's prophets. And so, you know, the Psalms are not the same as 2 Samuel. And the prophet Amos is not the same as... The letter to the Philippians and this new and gospel narrative is not the same as revelation and apocalyptic literature. So there's a chapter in the book for essentially every little section in that biblical library to say what's unique about the books of Moses and what is unique about history and why are the prophets why are they hard to read? And and basically just takes one chapter to walk into every section and say, here's what's in this section. Here's some of the questions that I would recommend asking just as a starting place. Here's some tools and resources. And the book is basically meant to just get us into those rooms. It's not going to answer all the questions. It's not going to do all the work for us. But it might allow us to not be intimidated by the library so much. And that's really the the design of the book. It might give us just enough tools to get started on a new journey. Yeah, that's so good. Marty, I, I love how you and Brent, every time you start a podcast early on, it's all right, let's do a recap. And you kind of just walk through almost yeah. the entirety of the Bible to where you're at on the show. Um, I don't know if you remember this. There was a, a kind of a program that was popular for a while called Walk Through the Bible. And it was kind of a quick phrase mm-hmm. for every single book of the Bible. And I just remember the leader yelling, from the beginning. And then we would all kind of stand up and yell, like, <laughs> Genesis is this and Exodus. I don't know if you remember yeah. that or not, but... It's it what it what it really helped me. It's probably seated in my subconscious, and that's why I that's why I probably have that in my mind. I I, I vaguely remember that. That's probably why it came with me. Yeah, it's crazy, man. <laughs> I just I just think what it, it is kind of this funny moment. But what it actually helps you do is okay. This is I'm reading in the Old Testament. This is this is the arch of the this is the arc of the story. 
oh, I'm entering into that place, that town, yeah. that village, that time frame. Um, and it just really helps me set my mind on those things. Um, well, I, you've got a couple other things in your book I'd love love to talk to you about. Um, we've talked about the journey, um, that phrase, then also kind of having a more more faithful engagement with the scriptures. But you also use this phrase treasure hunt, which I love. Um, a mentor of mine had this definition where he said that Bible study is the art of asking and answering questions of the Bible text that helps us understand God better. Um, helps us engage with the Lord. Um, so he, one, he says art, not science. So that's, that's fun. Uh, I'm a musician. I think you're a musician as well. Um, so I, I just, I kind of like that idea, but, um, you say this on page 58 says when God's people engage in these dynamic living and active treasure hunts, scripture comes to life with a new kind of beauty. Um, we quit looking at the ancient text from the cold distance of history and instead lean in with a sense of wonder and curiosity. And I just love how you've stated that. That's so, so good. Um, so, you know, that's always contrasted with, you know, professional people are supposed to do that. You know, as a lay person, I'm not supposed to do that. Um, or a, a regular person in our churches wouldn't do that. So how do we, how do we help people kind of regain this lost art of asking and answering questions of the Bible? so that it's not this professionalized thing and, and help everybody engage in these dynamic living and active treasure hunts. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you catching that dynamic tension. Um, and usually we've gone one direction or the other. Historically, we usually have a very high regard for the scholars, the priesthood, the people in charge, the, the folks that are supposed to do this, or we have a very like, um, you know, the priesthood of all believers, everybody's, you know, everybody's an armchair theologian, nobody is special. And, and really it will always, it will often be this combination of the two, recognizing the beautiful work that people that dedicate their lives to this stuff do having a, having a very healthy respect for scholars and spiritual leadership. Um, but also realizing that doesn't make this an exclusive art form and never was supposed to be, not to the ancient people of God, not to Jews in the Hebrew scriptures, not, it was never something that was possessed solely by some small group of people. And there are two things that always jump out to me when, when I hear questions about what you're asking about. One of those is um, uh, this idea that I heard a rabbi that once said, um, when Christians read the Bible, they go to it looking for truth. Like they read the Bible looking for truth. When Jews read the scriptures, they read it looking for meaning. I found that to be a really helpful quip that I bring with me. Like we always are looking for data, for doctrine, for truth statements. Um, but a Jew reads it looking and that changes the hunt a little bit. It changes the discovery. It changes. It is a little bit. And I love the whole science, the science art thing, because it's totally both. There is absolutely an objective science to studying a chiasm. Oh, yeah. And if people don't know so what a chiasm good. is, they can get the book. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there's you'll some be objectivity blown away by to that. these literary quick, tools. You'll be blown away by the chiasm. You'll, you're like, what? I've never seen these before. <laughs> and then when you're reading it, you're like, I think I found my first one by myself. You know, that Marty didn't show me in the book or on his podcast, you know. Like, so, uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So just totally. a little plug for that. Totally. Find one of those. Uh, it's it's kind of cool. So go ahead, Marty. Sorry to interrupt. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's good. It's worth the interruption. It, there is a science to that. There's object to, and yet underneath it all is art because um, there's an art form to it too. So it, it sh if I'm just looking objectively at this dry, I'm just trying to extract data, truth data, doctrinal dogmatic points out. It changes whether, if I'm looking at this, going to the story, trying to find meaning, which also the other thing I always think about is for the Eastern people who wrote the Bible, the inspired Bible, um, the inspired text for the Eastern folks that wrote it and read it in its earliest days, discovery was such a high premium to them. It wasn't just about telling you, you know, the Western world would tell you, here's the, here's the proposition. Here's the supporting points. Do you agree with me or don't? But it's, it's a very proposition based truth vehicle. But because they're looking for meaning, they want you to discover meaning. Because if you can discover truth, 
if you can discover meaning, you're so you're so much more intimately connected to it. And so that means that they're purposely burying, not not uh, not so you don't find it, and not I'm not talking about Bible code. I just mean a story is is told like a piece of art. It's told in a way so that if you really want it, and Jesus said this, I tell the, I speak to them in parables because I, they don't want to understand. Because if they did understand, they'd have to change. Um, and so there's there, there's an art to if you really want to find this, and if you really want to wrestle with this story, you're going to find a little gem, a little treasure in here that's going to really open up what God's trying to say in the scripture. And that's going to change the heart so much more than a blog post that has three points that all start with the letter R, you know, that kind of thing. So I just have, I, I carry those two things with me whenever I think about treasure hunts and scripture. It's not because God's trying to hide stuff. It's because, well, I heard somebody, okay, it's my, I'll, I'll, this is my last little bit and I'll let you ask your next question. But I heard somebody describe this the other day. It's like somebody playing hide and seek. Like when the father plays hide and seek with the daughter. The father is hiding because he wants to be found. And I thought about that in terms of the text. Like there are things hiding in the Bible because God wants you to find them. And he gives us the tools to find them. And the authors of scripture have buried them in objective ways. But there's a discovery. So go find the good stuff that's in there. Go dig and find. And, and, and there, that journey is just something so valuable to us. Yeah. Boy, Marty, there's so much, so much to respond to. It's so good. Uh, you, you just, you get so excited when you see people interact with the scriptures and know that God has spoken to them or know that God has revealed something to them as they're in the scriptures. And oftentimes that's kind of this relief moment as a disciple maker, you know, as we're trying to help people be a disciple, make disciples in every corner of the harvest that, wow, this person is in the scriptures and they're not just studying words on the page. They're actually getting to know the creator of the universe. They're getting to know Jesus. And so as I, as I hear you talk about this idea of treasure hunts, you know, as we're thinking about passing it on, you mentioned your two kids, you're passing on this kind of idea to be on a treasure hunt with God, to be in the scriptures. Um, you're passing that on, you, you know, you and Brent are passing that on locally, you know, where you're doing ministry, but then also, you know, through the podcast. And it's this real exciting thing to, to kind of help other people be on this treasure hunt. Um, but so I just, I, I can't tell folks how exciting it is if we can help people really capture this idea of you, me, a group of us in the scriptures together, discovering who Jesus is. And we're passing that on for generations and gener generations to come, not just physical generations, but spiritual generations as well. I'll, I'll go on with the next one. I don't know if you got a comment on that one, but go ahead. No, it's the communal, and that's just true for so many, so many parts, corners of our faith, including the Bible, or maybe even especially the Bible, that it's always been such a personal me and Jesus, me and God. And it's always so helpful to be reminded this is about we and God, us and God, about generations that are directly connected to me through my children, through the spiritual children that we all have that are watching us and coming up behind us. And we're stewarding the church right now at this time in history. We'll be handing that off and turn. We're already handing that off to the people that are behind us. Always, always helpful to be reminded of the because our, our Western American narrative and perspective is not typically going to remind us of the we, you know, the we part of of the, of the faith. It will always do a much better job of going the me part of the faith. And so I think it's always a helpful reminder. Yeah. You, you referenced that actually in the book a couple of times, misreading the scriptures through Western eyes. It was, um, that I read that book. It was very helpful. And we've just been in the scriptures, you know, every Sunday I meet with a group of about 20 or so of us and we, you know, we break into small groups, but we've been in the scriptures together, kind of studying the same thing. We just realized not just realized, but you, it just became so clear how this is a we and an us. It's not a you singular. Um, but you, you kind of mentioned this in the book, actually. You'll probably begin to read every you as a plural. Um, or I don't, maybe that was on one of your podcasts. You can, just to kind of get in the habit of, okay, there's it's a group here, actually, that's, that's kind of 
moving us beyond intense individualization, but moving us towards how do we work as a community. A, a close mentor of ours just recently, um, a few years ago, went to be with the Lord, was a Pearl Harbor vet. Jim Downing is kind of a hero of the faith for, for many of us and kind of the disciple-making circles. Um, he would travel all over the place, you know, guys learn how to do email when he's like 75 and learn a PowerPoint when he was a hundred and was always kind of this learner constantly just pulling in information. It was real inspiration, but he talked about one of the common links that he always saw when he met from community to community that was kind of making disciples and proclaiming Jesus was there was a group of the leaders that came together and they were constantly studying the scriptures and wrestling the scriptures together with each other. Um, and you kind of reference this in your book. You say, you know, I imagine teaching the people in my church how to read the Bible like this, equipping them to have a similar experience as be part of a communal conversation rather than a bunch of individuals studying the Bible in their kind of their bubbles, their own personal bubbles. So I just wondered if could you give us some ideas? What are some practical ways readers, you know, you know, those who want to follow Jesus can create opportunities for this approach to God's word and disciple makers can help their disciples kind of grow in this way? Yeah, absolutely. And and I don't know if it's I'm sure that there's got to be so many different offshoots of this idea, but the the idea of discussing the Bible and studying the Bible in groups of people together, having those conversations. You know, we talk a lot about small groups today and oftentimes when we talk about small groups it's always about church growth or church assimilation, but part of the beauty of small groups is the idea of studying God's word together. And even then, we can still be in a group and still be asking very personal questions about what is Jesus telling you and what are you hearing about what you're going to do. And those are good questions. We shouldn't get rid of those. But we should we should work hard to find those other questions, which is what what is God telling us? What is God asking our church to do in the city in which we live? What is God asking us? How is he asking us to respond to this situation, not just as individuals, but together as a group of people? Because it's very very common in our churches. We have a lot of individuals that have come together for a common purpose. We listen to the same sermon, but it's, it's still a very individual transaction. It's very individual growth that's done together. And it's hard for us to tra- kind of transcend that and ask a much bigger question about what are we learning and what is God doing in us? That was the more, that was the more common assumption that they would assume in the biblical world that backwards. They would ask the us question and then later ask the question about, okay, what about me? And we kind of do it backwards. I don't know if either one's right or wrong. It's just, we have a tendency to lean in that individualist direction. I know that same author wrote a second book, misreading scripture through individualist eyes, just to drill down on that one, that one common idea and how we how we get that twisted. So yeah, I think, I think studying the Bible to the, in the ancient world, they would have called it a havara. Um, the word, the root word there is haver. It's a, it's a friend, but it's a particular kind of friend. It's a friend that has a, you, you share a common affinity, you share a common allegiance. And this havara is a group of friends, a group of wrestling. Um, I think Lois Tverberg actually writes about it and her book, it's probably sitting in the feet of Rabbi Jesus. And, and it's, it's this group of people dedicated to wrestling this out together so that we together as a unit become the, the kind of people, not just as individuals, but also as a body, the, the people that God's wanting us to become. Yeah, that's so good. It, it seems like it highlights that tension again, right? That whether professional people need to teach the Bible, right? Um, or we need to make sure we're, we're, we're tied on our theology. There's always this tension, right, of orthodoxy, orthopraxy, but also like kind of make sure we get our doctrine right versus, you know, heresy, you know, like, so I, what's, you know, one of the things you talk about is this idea of Shammai and Halil and in your, in your book and how they had these different kind of perspectives and, and that, and Jesus was kind of walking into that context, um, I'll, I'll read the quote. It might help set it up for us. Um, and you say this, there's still an awful lot of Shammai's dressed in Jesus's clothes who run around in modern day evangelism. We struggle to live out the love ethic of the gospels and how we read the gospels matters because it should change how we live the gospels now. So I wonder if you could just kind of set up that idea of the Shammai and Halil. I know that's kind of a big concept, but the, the following question is, you know, 
how do we do that in church? How do we do that in a group where there's going to be kind of these warring factions, so to speak, or kind of perspectives rather, you know, easy ones that come to mind are like predestination and free will and things like that. Um, so how do we, how do we navigate that as we try and shape community or our listeners try and shape community they participate in? Yeah, it's a great way to set up the question because it shows us that the world of Jesus wasn't a whole lot different than the worlds that we, there were often two competing. In fact, in Judaism, it's almost assumed there's always two competing worldviews because it's those two things that help us grow and learn and hold us in tension. And yet one ends up taking over the course of that wrestling match, one does end up taking kind of precedence and ends up shaping the conversation. And yet how you got there was between this back and forth. So in Jesus's day, there were these two schools of thought. Um, and it's, it's somewhat... Ar- poetically phrased this way in Jewish history, but there's the school of Shammai. Shammai represented a obedience-driven hermeneutic. I'm going to read the Bible with my lenses set, my prescription set on my glasses to obedience. I'm going to read every tension. I'm going to read every law. I'm going to read every story looking for meaning through the lens of obedience. I think the whole scripture is about being obedient to God. And then there was another school of thought, and that was a school of Hillel. And Hillel believed that the lens that you were supposed to read the scripture through was love. And these two rabbis existed one to two generations before Jesus, the, the real, really the generation that um, preceded the ministry of Jesus. Jesus was the generation where this became, you know, kind of saw its peak of, of debate. And everybody's arguing about, is it love? Is it a love hermeneutic? Is it a love perspective? Is it about loving other people or is it about obedience? And obviously Jesus wanders into these debates um, very clearly. He's asked these questions, which side do you side on? And I think a lot of us today would probably be like, I bet he took a third road. And the answer is he didn't. He usually almost always sided with Hillel all but one time. Um, he sides with Hillel. And that's that's instructive for us. It tells us that there are two different ways that we're often, even today, we're still driven, challenged to read the Bible through two different lenses. Do we read it through the lens of There's a moral ethical code that God expects us to follow. And the answer to that is obviously yes. But is that the dominant lens you read the scripture through? Hillel wouldn't have said there wasn't. Hillel wouldn't have said that obedience doesn't matter. The debate was on which set of glasses do I put on? And then there, we're always tempted to read the Bible through the lens of love. And Jesus stepped into that and he said, I'll answer that question for you. It's the love lens. Um, and, And any group of religious people, Jews, Christians, any group of religious people, there's always going to be a temptation because of the helpfulness of those fences we talked about at the beginning, because of the helpfulness of the scaffolding, because of the helpfulness of the structure and the moral and ethical conversations and those codes that help give life and expression to faith. There's always going to be a temptation to say that it's those, it's those codes and it's those it's that obedience that is the driving point of this whole story. And the challenge is to always remember it's the love of God. And that's why those codes are important because of what those codes do to people. Because God loves people and he wants people to love him. And, and to just remember which, which one of those schools of thought. It's just easy. And we do have a lot of shamites that run around uh, in Christianity today. It's just easy. It's an easy, it's an easy thing to... Under, and it's, it's easy to understand, to be quite honest. It's easy to throw rocks at them too, but it's easy to really understand why we gravitate in those directions. It's, it just seems so helpful. It seems so clear. It seems so uh, efficient and, and, and love. Well, that's, well, that's just problematic and that just causes, and yet Jesus says, yeah, but behind it all, that's the thing driving the day. Mm. Yeah. It's so good, Marty. It, it's, it's this picture of what I really truly understand about God. Is he a rule? Is he a rule maker? Or is he a relationship builder? You know, is it, and what is he ushering me into? Is he ushering me into rules and regulations? Or is he ushering me into his presence and into his person? And, you know, I just love that Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. You know, so just this picture of I'm ushered into relationship. I'm not usher, ushered into rules and regulations and... Really, isn't that what can kind of create some of this tension in our lives where, okay, I have to obey, I have to obey, you know, and, you know, 
there's some theological things in that mess you up too that okay am i still in relationship with god if i sin and when do i need to repent and how quickly do i and but really understanding god ushering us into this place of love and understanding and like our, our home of origin and our churches and theology are kind of kind of pushes all of that and, and, and frames it up for us. But but what I love about how you've approached how you have personally approached the scriptures, but also how you help us approach that in your in your book is let's pull all those things away. You and Jesus, ask any question you want of the scriptures and let it usher you into his presence. Um, and I, it seems like if we can do that in our groups, if we can trust the scriptures, trust God's sovereignty um, then he can bring this to a place of greater revelation and trust in him as truth unfolds over time. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, yeah, you've worded that well. I, I appreciate your kind words about the book and the resources. And that is that is our heart. Like anything that gets us towards Jesus, everything else is going to be it's going to be pretty it's going to be pretty finite. It's going to have its limitations. It's only going to be able to do so much. But if any of these tools and resources can help us lean further into the Bible and get closer to Jesus, that's that's it. That's what we're doing. Yeah, so good. Well, Marty, it's really been a pleasure. I don't know if you have any any final thoughts. I'll, I'll pass it back to you. But we really want to say thanks. We did link uh, your book on Amazon in the show notes. Uh, the Bama podcast, the website link will also be there. If you want to know more about Impact Campus Ministries, we'll have a link to that as well. Impact the you, impact the world. And and then your own personal website, Marty, is on there as well. So lots of ways to connect um, and to learn some more and to really grow uh, in your understanding of the scriptures so you can really ultimately pursue the one who wrote it and inspired it. So any other final thoughts, Marty, you might have for our gang? Not really. I appreciate the opportunity, John, to make some new friends and and talk about the scriptures. Always a fun pastime of mine. So just a great opportunity to get to do that with somebody new. Yeah, great, Marty. Thanks for having us. It was it was really my pleasure, and I know our listeners will get a lot out of it. So thanks a lot, Marty, for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you, John.